What's up, everyone? Welcome back to the podcast. This is episode 27. I'm joined by my buddy, uh, physical therapist and former Air Force para-jumper, Doug Jeechan. We talk about his military career, some things that, some of the things that he got to do and, and what it was like to be uh, an Air Force para-jumper, which is cool because I think a lot of us you know, that weren't in the military or uh, got to do anything kind of special ops related we all kind of like romanticized that so it was really cool to hear hear about it from the horse's mouth and then we just talked about training man and and what it takes to to be ready for all different kinds of environments whether you're um, a special operator or a hunter and quite the parallels between backcountry hunting training and special operations training which is um, pretty neat to hear that parallel and the things that are useful, the things that aren't going to be useful and kind of organizing all of that into something that is actually going to take you to the places that you want to be. So I'm going to shut up and we're going to get to this conversation. I appreciate you. Enjoy yourself. All right, Dougie Fresh. I appreciate you joining me, man. It's always nice to see your face, even though everybody else can't see it right now. I can. <laughs> and that is comforting to me. Thank you. Thanks, man. Uh, dude, I, I love... Um, I'm always, I wanted to, so one of the goals with this podcast is, you know, it's human predator pack mule. Obviously we talk about training and everything for hunting, but one of my goals is to bring in my friends from my industry, from fitness and rehab and training and everything into the hunting training industry. Cause quite honestly, it's, it's garbage. Most of it. I don't mean to be a dick, but it's garbage. And, uh, you know, I, I think I wanted to talk to you because you're an interesting guy for a few different reasons. Uh, first and foremost, you made it through Brown and Columbia without becoming uh, an unreasonable person, which is <laughs> not, <laughs> kind of diplomatic of you to say. <laughs> not, not to be disparaging of ivory towers, but uh, that you and you and I share clients, which is cool. Yep. Um, I've actually got to experience your programming, which is cool. And I think another thing that is just really attractive to guys and, and ladies in, in the hunting training space is that you were a special operator. And because uh, you see a lot of a lot of hunting training programs, like, well, the guy that the guy that did part of it used to be Navy SEAL. So it has to be good. And right. it's like, so for you to be uh, a special, a former special operator, and um, actually know what you're talking about and and be a re- like just a reasonable person when it comes to training is just, I think, invaluable. So it lends a lot of uh, weight when you and I have a discussion and we hear and, and people hear the things that you're about to say. Who knows what exactly what we're going to talk about? But that is is huge for people. So I really appreciate you taking the time, man. Yeah, thanks. And I. Uh... I appreciate what you're doing with this podcast because, yeah, I think there's a lot of room for growth in the hunting space for physical preparation. And there's a lot of, I think, synergy between, you know, like what hunters need to be prepared to do, depending on the nature of, of the hunt and even like what goes on in the military. So it's funny because I don't, I don't have any background in hunting. I haven't hunted. And we've, we've talked about how, like the first time that I hunt, I want to do it with you because my, you know, growing up, like I grew up kind of in the suburbs and my only like real responsibility was to just go to school, get decent grades, like play sports. You know, I, I mean, I had a very supportive and nurturing childhood, but I never really was really asked to do that much. And so I, part of the reason why I joined the military was because I'm like, all right, like I've never really been tested and I can do things, you know, like society has certain expectations of what children should be able to do. And they, I think they reward certain things at the expense of, of others. And, and society now kind of rewards specialization and academic success, but that doesn't necessarily make you a useful person. And like, you know, and the, the military kind of taught me and what part of the appeal of the military was like, all right, like if things really, really go bad, like what are the things that you have to be able to do? And some of the, like, very, very the essence of hunting, right? Like procuring your own food, knowing how to live and survive outside, even, even how to, um, you know, I think we come from the philosophy of like, we want to be prepared for violence, but never have to actually execute that violence. But sure. it's kind of like a, a taboo subject, but I think that it's important to at least be familiar with, you know, these are the things that you might have to do 
when 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 things go bad. And so that was a big part of the appeal of the military. And having gone through that military training, that military experience, now now I appreciate hunting a lot more. And it's something now that like I'm a I'm a new father. Like I would love to teach my son how to hunt. And even from like an ethical perspective, I mean, people can have discussions about you know should you eat animals? And like I I respect people who say like look. I don't for ethical reasons want to eat animals, but I think if you've decided like, okay, like you're going to consume animal products, um, you know, I, I think it's almost more ethical to know how the sausage is made and how to experience that. And in, in a way, like if you're procuring your own food via hunting, that, that process is probably a lot more ethical than what's being done in kind of commercial industrialized, um, you know, meat procurement. Right. So for a lot of reasons, like I, my military experience, I think, made me appreciate, you know, like like any other industry. I think hunting has become kind of commercialized, and there's oh, there's sure. a hunting culture, and that that's like any industry has that, right? But um, and there's good and bad aspects to I think what that stereotype is, but I think at its essence, like hunting is a really cool skill that I think that you know if people explored it like from the the purest aspect of it, I think it would actually bring a lot of people together. So. That's something that I kind of want to explore myself, but from like a, a physical standpoint, yeah, I mean, technology has made things very, very easy, but I know people, we both know like Michael Easter, right? Yeah. Michael I was actually going to bring him up. I was going to bring him up. Yeah. And like, you know, the book that he wrote, like, again, there's a lot of synergy between what he did on his expedition and, you know, kind of the nature of even like a special operations mission in the military, because in a military mission, the target or the objective doesn't present itself to you. You have to get there. And oftentimes you're, you're, you're working in very like forbidden environments. You have to, you know, get to your objective on foot through adverse terrain. And because of the, you know, you want the element of surprise on your side, you might have to infiltrate, you know, a couple of hours or even a couple of days to, to get to an objective in a way where, you know, you're maintaining that element of surprise. And I would imagine it's the same thing as kind of stalking an, an animal. Um, so like anything else, kind of the more, the, the more difficult the objective and sort of the more risk getting there, the higher the reward and the stuff that like Donnie and Michael were doing on their expedition. I mean, it doesn't present itself to just flying in somewhere, showing up and then expecting to, to, you know, be able to stalk all these like precious, um, precious game. Like they had to kind of earn that, um, because of the, the just the nature of the terrain. And so I think that like, again, I've never hunted, so I don't want to speak ignorantly about it, but I'm sure there are hunts that aren't very physically demanding, but they probably aren't as fun and as rewarding. And so I think having that physical preparation is going to give you a greater repertoire of things that you can pursue and probably make it rewarding because part of, I'm sure the lore of hunting is like, is that process and not so much just like, yeah, I'm sure it's great to say like, okay, I've got this much meat to eat for the next however many months, sure. but it's you know, it's the process of doing that. And oftentimes the more in the journey, the more difficult that journey, the more rewarding the experience is. And if you're not physically prepared, then it limits the, the kind of journeys that you can take. So um, I don't know if that made no, any it makes, sense. And, it does. Yeah. It was a good lead. Well, I, I, I can speak to that. I can speak to the fact that it's, it's not as fun when an animal just presents itself to you and is like, here right. I am. Uh, that's not as fun. And I can also, I mean, I've been, I've been well physically prepared on all of the excursion type hunts that I've gone, I've gone on, which I'm, I'm sure that you would expect, but I know, you know, just from talking to guides and talking to other people that they have, there are a bunch of guys that show up and they're not in shape and they're not ready and they have a terrible experience. So not necessarily right. do you not get the reward that you're talking about, like just have a shitty time of it because yeah. you just can't handle what's going on. And, and I think that that's, that's the goal of, of all of it. But I, just for context sake, and just to take one little step back, just so people understand more about you and kind of like the job you did, tell, tell me about, well, I know, but tell everybody about what you did in the military. Yeah, so I did, uh, I was a pararescue man in the Air Force. So it's essentially, it's search and rescue for the Air Force and the entire DOD, Department of Defense. So basically like, you know, a lot of job, a lot of special operations jobs, their, their mission set is they have like deliberate objectives, deliberate targets that they can plan for 
whereas the nature of pararescue is more reactionary. Like you're there as a contingency. So you can have some very exciting missions and you can do a lot of, you know, twiddling your thumbs. It's kind of like 911 for the military in a lot of ways. And it's, it's kind of even conflicting from like a psychological standpoint, because you want to be there and you want to do your job. But if you're doing your job, that means someone has had a really bad day. So, you know, there were deployments where like some deployments where, you know, my, my team, we were on the hook for like anything that could go wrong in the entire theater. So conventional sport forces, special operations forces, even doing some things that probably weren't so exciting, just like some medical transports and not even always point of injury, but like because of our, our medical capability, it might be like a critical care patient that had been stabilized at like say one forward operating base in a place like Afghanistan. And then we would, you know, we would fly that person to a different forward operating base. And so important job, but not like what you would associate with like a special operations type job, but because of our medical capability, they wanted to utilize us. Um, and then, you know, we would, we would get attached to like different special operations units where now we're maybe the medic on the ground, but the traditional kind of bread and butter pararescue mission is you're just kind of like waiting for something to happen. And it could be, you know, a vehicle gets hit by an IED. And because you have that technical rescue capability where not only do you have medical training, but you have the ability to get, you know, in vehicles because when airplanes or helicopters crash or vehicles get blown up, like patients, just like in hunting, they don't present themselves to you. They're often trapped under things or trapped in things. You've got to be able to get to them. Um, you know, in a place like Afghanistan, where there was a lot of um, mountainous terrain, we were trained in, you know, high angle rescue and, and mountaineering. So having that technical race rescue capability allows you to, you know, access those casualties of those patients. And then having the medical training to, you know, to stabilize them, evacuate them. And then on top of that, being able to, to defend yourself in those austere environments. So even though, you know, we weren't like a direct action unit, there were pararescue men who were attached to direct action units. You know, ideally, PJ shouldn't be shooting people. Like, it happens. But like in my career, you know, and I, I, I say this just because I don't want to make it like I was some, you know, some like operator who was like, you know, slinging rounds down range. Like, it, on our deployment, I never had to fire my weapon. And like, I'm agnostic to that. That's not a good or a bad thing. It's just that the missions that I went on, I didn't have to do it. I was on missions where we had, you know, we had shooters as our security team and they had to fire their weapon. But having that security team allowed myself and the other, other PJs to, to do the extrication, do the medical piece, because that's really our subject matter expertise, even though we are trained to be able to operate with those forces and with people that are more direct action oriented. But our real like bread and butter mission was reactionary, you know, like waiting for kind of bad things to happen to other people. And, you know, in some theaters, there were days where we could be, we could be busy every day and have multiple missions. There were some deployments that I went on where like, I literally went on like three missions in a three or a four month time period. And so again, whether that's good or bad, I'm agnostic to that because if something is going to happen, my teammates and I wanted to go, but um, we weren't like rooting for things to happen to sure. people. And they, and they were missions, you know, where like, I was on, like my, my unit or my team was only on the hook for special operations missions. And so, you know, that's a case where if it's the people that probably your audience is more familiar with, whether it's like SEALs or Rangers, um, you know, MARSOC, those kind of groups, like on that deployment, I'm, I'm happy if I'm not busy because like, I don't want those guys to sustain casualties so I can do my job. So in, in those environments, we would maybe posture ourselves a little bit more forward and a little bit more aggressively where, you know, if they were on target somewhere, we might like be, be air loitering in a helicopter a couple of miles away, or we might be like staged at the nearest forward operating base. So we're kind of like, we're spun up and we're really ready and aggressively postured. But most of those nights, like we might do that every single night, but most of those nights we ended up just turning the rotors and burning gas because those guys are so good. They don't sustain a lot of casualties. And because of how meticulously they plan, they're trying to minimize risk and, you know, maintain the element of surprise and all those things. So it's really a, a varied experience, but again, your, your job is, is search and rescue for the military. So you've got to kind of be ready for any scenario, which can be awesome because you've got, you've got to train in all these diverse skill sets, whether it's like, you know, static line and free fall parachuting, mountaineering, uh, helicopter operations, you know, water rescue, um, high angle rescue, technical rescue, extrication, small unit tactics, 
but because the the mission set is so varied it can be frustrating too because you're like you have such a specialized job that you don't often get to do it but again the flip side of that is if you're doing it then it means someone has had a really bad day so that's where you know a lot of times the more coveted jobs in pararescue are when you're kind of farmed out to like a seal team or a ranger team or an army special forces team because those guys are going to go out on missions no matter what and now you get to go out on the mission with them as more of like a like a medic and a technical rescue expert like you're still you know you're more of like a secondary shooter um and the primary shooters are the people on that team you're attached to and even on any of those teams right they, they all have specialized jobs it might be comms they sometimes have their own medics but my experience has been that like even with like seals and you know sometimes like army special forces teams they they identify kind of as shooters first medic second and they're very happy to have a pj come along because then it's like you know now you're the primary medic and they can focus on being a shooter and again like i i wanted to be a pj because i like the, the medical and the, the technical rescue aspect of it like I, I i enjoy shooting and tactics and that kind of stuff too but like i'm happy to not be the first guy in the stack because i i like the medicine and there, I think there were some PJs who would get frustrated because they're like, yeah, I want to be a shooter. But it's like, if you really wanted to be a shooter primarily, you probably should have been in a different job. So there's a lot of redundancy and overlap, but I would say that like pararescue, like really your, your primary job is medicine and technical rescue and you're, you're a shooter second. And it, like I said, it can vary anything from like, you're just, you're on a, on a FOB forward operating base, like waiting for something to happen. You could be in the air, you know, air loitering, spinning rotors, or you could be on the ground, you know, really, really stage forward. So um, it's, it's, it's hard to really pinpoint, like, what does a PJ do? Because the mission can be so varied depending on like your unit and who you're attached to. But primarily it's like a more of a reactionary job where, you know, you're, you're waiting to sustain, you're waiting for a casualty or you're waiting for even sometimes like I had missions where there weren't even people that were casualties it could be like a an aircraft that has sensitive sensitive items on it so like a, a reconnaissance platform or like some kind of a drone obviously we don't want people in some of these countries where we're flying these aircraft to get hold of that technology so we would have training in like where were the sensitive items what should we remove um i've had you know not myself but like i've had colleagues who they've had missions like in the horn of africa where they had to dive and recover some of these things so you know that that Again, it's like a very varied skill set, um, but it's feast or famine as far as missions go. I've had deployments where I was very busy and some were like, I frankly didn't do anything. And I say that because for people who are interested in this stuff and maybe you're like, yeah, I want to be a PJ. Like I want to paint a realistic picture sure. of what it is. And, I, and, it, and it's an awesome job and I have zero regrets about doing it, but it's more, and I think saying that should still attract a certain kind of person. But if you're like, hey, I want to be in the military and do a special operations job. And I want to be like doing, you know, a lot, a lot of shooting and that kind of stuff. Like that's not always what pararescue is, but if you like medicine, you like technical rescue, then there's no other job like it. And it's really, I think there probably aren't really many groups in the world that offer that, that kind of a skill set because not only did we do, um, you know, like rescues overseas and combat environments, but you're also on the hook for some domestic emergencies. So like um, I, I joined, right around the time of, of Hurricane Katrina. So I was still in training during Hurricane Katrina, but the unit that I joined, I mean, they were they were doing like, you know, it was like Mad Max, like all these helicopters in the air. They're picking people off roofs. They're doing these swift water rescues because of the, the hurricane and the flooding. Um, there's a unit in Alaska that has a big civilian commitment. And so you talk about like hunters, I mean, hunters riding around in like ATVs and stuff like that. Um, a lot of hunters there are private pilots just because the, the terrain is so expansive. Yeah. That's the only way to really get around. And like, there was a mission within the last couple of years where I think it was like a hunter or an explorer, like literally got attacked by a bear and was bitten in the face. And a bunch of PJs from Alaska, like parachuted down to really? the sky, stabilized him. He had like a skull fracture and did what, you know, did whatever medical treatment was required to get this person to surgery. So like, yeah, I mean, you literally have PJs that are parachuting to guys that have been attacked by bears. Um, right after I separated from the military in 2016, and as is usually the case, as soon as you get out, you know, a cool mission happens. And there was a civilian mission at my unit where um, there was a fire aboard a ship that was like, you know, thousands of miles off of the, the coast of the Atlantic, like somewhere between basically 
you know, the coast of New York and the coast of Europe. And um, my old unit like parachuted into this, into the ocean. We have this thing called a, a RAMS package. Um, I think it stands for rigged alternate method Zodiac. So they basically take a Zodiac boat, fold it up. It's got an engine on it. You put some cargo netting around it, some, you know, some wood to kind of create like a stable package, attach some, attach a parachute to it, a cargo parachute, throw the boat out, parachute after it in the middle of the ocean. You get rid of all the straps, you get rid of all the wood, you dewater the engine. It's got a, it's got an, um, an air tank attached to it. You turn the air cylinder on, it inflates. And now they were able, you know, with that Zodiac in the middle of the ocean to travel over to this cargo ship where um, a couple of people had, had, had been burned. There's like actually an explosion, I think. A couple of people, people had been burned, had significant airway burns where like they had like to the point where like they were, weren't really able to breathe. And um, some of these guys, you know, went in there, did a surgical cricothyrotomy where they basically in, surgically inserted a breathing tube, gave these people IV fluids, went through a whole like burn and, and shock protocol. Um, and like literally saved these guys' lives. And it was, it was cool because I think like um, a few months later, the guys who did that rescue actually flew back to, I forgot, they, they ended up um, flying these, these casualties, these patients to Portugal. And I'm not sure where they met them again. It might've actually been in Portugal and they got to see these guys you know, that they'd saved. Um, and the cool thing about you know, my unit was it was, a, it was an Air National Guard unit. So a lot of people also had civilian jobs as well. And you know, like you'd have guys who were, working with police departments on the SWAT team or the emergency services unit. You'd have like firefighters who were doing technical rescue and extrication every day. Um, and there was a couple of PAs too. So a couple of guys on this mission were, were PAs in their civilian jobs and like emergency or critical care PAs. So they were probably in some ways getting a better level of medical care than they would have gotten even from like a traditional PJ team because, you know, PJs are trained to the EMT paramedic level and a little bit beyond, but not to the PA level. And we had like actual PAs on this mission. But so that's the cool thing is you can do these combat rescues. You can rescue people that were attacked by bears. You can jump into the middle of the ocean and, and rescue people that were burned on ships. And again, th those missions aren't happening every day, but it's the kind of thing where like, if you do that kind of thing once in your life, it makes your career sure. and it makes all that training worth it. So um, yeah, I mean, it's, a, it's an awesome job. And that, that kind of speaks to just the the diverse mission set that, that you can have as a PJ, everything from like a civilian mission and a hurricane on a glacier in Alaska in the middle of the ocean to, you know, you're kind of at the, um, the tip of the spear with a special operations unit, even at the highest level. And you're like on the ground with those teams and doing everything from, you know, the shooting and the medicine to the, the technical rescue. So really, really awesome job. It's, it sounds wild. I mean, I don't, I don't know that, uh, I don't know that there are a lot of people that can do it, uh, which is a cool thing. You know, but I think the the biggest appreciation that I think uh, people, just a regular everyday folks or or even folks that like I work with uh, hunters, is the uh, amount of situations that you have to be prepared for. And what's interesting to me is your ability to change your stake so quickly. You know what I mean? Because it's like you got to be... I mean, you got to stay cool, calm, and collected. But your your level of arousal from I'm hanging out on a forward operating base to I got to go pull somebody off of a mountain yeah. and, and be able to change that. So the the variety of skills that you have to have and the variety of of physical prowess that you have to have is immense. Yeah, and that's that's one of those things too. It's another double edged sword because I think a lot of PJs, including myself, you get frustrated at times. You're like, I've got to train in all these things that. I'm never going to really get that good at them. So there's kind of this misconception that like, if you're, you know, free fall trained in the military, that you're like this, you know, you're like the guys in like point break who can like go out and, <laughs> and go without a parachute and like link up in the air. And like, you know, it, there's some guys that I work with who were like literally like elite parachutists because they would do it on their free time. And they had like thousands of jumps and on the weekends they would go and jump 10 times Saturday, 10 times Sunday. But like the goal of, for example, like skydiving in the military is not to make you like the most expert skydiver. It's to make you safe so you can jump with your team and get to get to an objective to do your job. Sure. Same thing with like, you know, scuba diving and some of these other disciplines. So you're doing, you have this huge breadth of, of skill set, but you're like, yeah, I'm never going to be like that great in any of it. Same thing with medicine, right? Like I, I am under no illusion that 
I was as proficient medically as, you know, like a critical care flight paramedic who was, who was doing medical transports every day, or like a PA that works in the emergency room, you know, you're, you're kind of good enough to do your job. Um, but I think that what, what was helpful about being like a generalist and not a specialist is that there's also, even though the skill sets are different, there's a lot of similarities and like everything that you're doing is risk management. So like when you're on the side of a mountain and you're, you know, doing like a, ro- a high angle rope rescue scenario. And again, like I'm never going to be as good at rope rescue as a mountain guide who like does that every day. Sure. But you know, you're, you're competent and you're like, you're good enough and you've got to figure out what's that kind of like that 80% standard and be really good at those basics. And then even from there, like everything is a, is a derivation of the basics, even at like the, the highest level of parachuting and rope rescue, like they're still just doing the basics, but they can apply the basics into more scenarios. But you, you, after a while, you, you begin to see as a generalist, the commonalities between all those things. And it all comes down to risk management and like working as a team and communication. And so for everything that we did, whether it was like a, a parachute jump and training, a rope rescue, like we always go, we'd go through this risk analysis where it's like, okay, like basically is the juice worth the squeeze, right? So in a training mission, you know, you've got different limits for things. So like, for example, if the wind is out of limits on a training jump, you don't do it. But there's also a gray area too, where like, I'm not sure, I, I'm pretty sure that like for a training jump, cause I've been out for a couple of years, like for a land jump for a free fall um, training mission, you'd have to, it would have to be, it was like 18 knots on land and 25 knots in the, in the water. But that, that, that applies to the surface winds. There was no real regulation for, well, what are the winds at altitude? So sure. like I had a, a training uh, mission that I was jump mastering where, you know, the winds were within limits on the surface, but at altitude, they were like, they were crazy. It was like 50, 60 miles an hour at altitude. So technically like I was, we would have been allowed to jump as a team, but then I'm kind of like, I'm looking at where the spot would have been. And it was going to be like really, really far from, you know, where the, the drop zone was. And we had a lot of like new PJs who had just graduated the, the training pipeline. who didn't have a lot of experience jumping. And even myself, you know, I'm kind of like, I, I've got, I'm a jump master. I'm pretty uncomfortable with this jump myself. I can only imagine someone who's like new to, and of course it's the kind of thing where like the new guys aren't going to say, yeah, like I don't, I'm not comfortable sure. doing this. Yeah. So you is kind of like, in that case, the, the person responsible, you've got to like not set them up to fail and even set myself up to fail. Right. Because sometimes like even as an experienced jumper, like maybe you didn't jump for three months because you just got back from a deployment and it was like a night jump. Right. So there's all these variables and it's also the spot would have brought us out over the highway. So if like we'd fallen short of the target, like we literally could have landed on the highway. Right. Jesus. So again, that it would have been, we would have been within limits to jump, but that's where the risk analysis comes in. It's like, is it, is this, this is a training mission, right? Like we can, we can jump tomorrow when the winds are a little bit, you know, in limits, but a little bit more reasonable. And it's like, is it worth potentially having somebody land on the highway or land in a tree and permanently disable themselves or get hurt where they can't train or make the next deployment just to say that we, you know, we're going to be hard and we're going to do it. So having to make those kind of decisions, you know, in everything that you did, whether it was jumping, um, rope rescue, you know, helicopter operations, diving, even in medicine, because a lot of medicine is like, is triage, you begin to see patterns between all these things, you just get comfortable dealing with risk in general. And I think that's what makes you kind of more level headed and confident in all those situations, even though you might not be like an expert, like an emergency PA would be, or you're not like, you know, a skydiver who's doing these like 60 person formations that has like 5,000 jumps. And so I think that what the military does really well is it teaches you like how to work as a team, how to manage risk and how to plan, which is why like um, when the whole, you know, when COVID was at its peak in New York, a lot of my, um, my former teammates, like they went over to some of these hospitals where um, like COVID was like the emergency rooms are being really, really overwhelmed. And even though they probably these PJs weren't as competent medically as like some of the, the PAs, doctors and nurses who work in emergency rooms every day, they were comfortable, much more comfortable with chaos. So what they were able to offer those hospitals is kind of more like, how do you work as a team? How do you triage? How do you like, how do you prioritize? Because like combat medicine is all about prioritization. It's not about perfection. It's about like 
how can you do the most good for the most amount of people and, and, and make choices and compromises. And that's exactly what goes on in a civilian emergency room, you know, at the heart of COVID when like these hospitals are being overwhelmed. Um, how do you really triage and also make use of minimal resources? Because, you know, in the military, in military medicine, you're only, you're only able to utilize what you can carry on your back. The, the hunter, you know, predator pack mule thing that you're, you're, you're speaking to, right? So when hospitals are overwhelmed, the resources are low, how do you make the most of those resources? And that's where, like, I think these PJs were an immense help to these emergency rooms and hospitals, because I think what made them, what made them more useful medically in that scenario was that they were generalists trained to manage risk and work in these chaotic environments. So even though they probably couldn't like intubate as well as the anesthesiologist, they weren't necessarily in that in those hospitals, like they weren't the ones that were doing that, but they were comfortable like, hey, here's how we can create better systems to provide better care to more people and not so much focus on like what's optimal for an individual because when those emergency rooms are overwhelmed, it's not about what's best for the individual. It's about like, how do you just manage that chaos and create, create the most efficient system to just make the best out of the limited resources that you have? Yeah. I think there's parallels. I think there are big parallels between that and being a, a, a good hunter. I want to talk about it physically, but also from a from a standpoint of uh, just a general application of skills of knowing how to read the woods, like understanding terrain, understanding where animals are likely going to move based on food sources, based on cover, based on all of these kind of things. So I, I think uh, it, there are parallels that a good hunter is a good generalist. Um, and in a lot of respects, obviously, just like you said, you know, somebody might be a really, really good elk hunter because they spent most of their time elk hunting. Whereas, like, I think it's way cooler to be hunt able to hunt everything. So that's what I try to do. Yeah. Um, but from a physical standpoint, you know, we were I was having a discussion uh, with Chris about this the other day, and we were thinking about what, you know, what most people need, you know, whether you're and, and obviously things are taken to an extreme, uh, an extreme. I, I put up air quotes when I say that. Um when you are required to do some level of extreme activity, whether you're a special operator or whether you're walking up a mountain to kill a sheep. But I think it really boils down to the just simply people need to train for work capacity. And I think yeah. that that's where they mess up is they just don't train to be able to do a lot of work because they people do a lot of hard work, but they don't realize that that doesn't necessarily translate into being able to do a lot of work. Yes. Even when things essentially get hard. And and I think it's important to talk to you about that because it's like, you know, you, you prepared yourself for a special operations selection. You prepared yourself as a special operator and you've also fucking walked up Mount Kilimanjaro, which is like, yeah. it's a lot of work. So I, I just want to hear you talk about like, because obviously I've done some of your programming. You prepped Michael Easter to go hunt caribou and sheep in Alaska. So it's I, I, let's riff on that theme for a little bit, just like the general amount of work capacity and the amount of different qualities a person needs to be able to go do these things that we love to do. Yeah. And it's funny because like when I was programming for you and for Michael, I would, I would program for you guys pretty much exactly how I would program for somebody in a special operations unit or the guys that you work with, not for selection, but like for them to do their job. Right. Um, I see a lot of parallels and it, and even taking a step back, like assuming that people had an infinite amount of time to train and they were just, if somebody was just like, look, I want to be the most like physically useful human being that I can be. You know, I don't work an 80 hour a week. Like I work with like crazy people in New York who work like 80 hour a week jobs. And they're like, I literally have like, you know, an hour a week to work out. And some people say that, but in these cases, it's like kind of true. So that, that, that's a different story. But if someone's like, I just want to be the most physically competent human being I could be, then it comes down to being a physical generalist, because if you're working with like a, a team sport athlete or an athlete like in a, in, a, in a competitive sport, those competitive sports have very, very specific constraints and demands where like you have to train them to be a specialist. But if somebody like wants to hunt, right? That again, that's a lot of work capacity because it might take you eight, 10 hours of just being on your feet through adverse terrain to be able to, to access the things that you wanna be able to hunt. Same thing in the military. Like it might take you eight to 10 hours walking through adverse terrain to be able to get to your objective. Cause you can't just like, you know, sometimes you can, but you can't always just fast rope on top of a building and be like, Hey guys, we're here. Like that gives people right. a heads up. And I think, I don't know if this is true, but when I was in the military, I think I heard at some point that you can hear 
like you can hear a hel helicopter rotor. So I think when they're like somewhere between like seven and 14 miles out, like that's a long way. Sure right? is. And that yeah. gives people like, I mean, even, a, even a helicopter flying at, you know, um, two miles a minute, like that gives people time to get ready for stuff. So um, work capacity is huge. And not only is work capacity huge, I think just like relative strength. Um, Cause if you're relatively strong and you have work capacity, carrying a pack isn't, isn't as big a deal. So even for people who want to be able to carry packs and walk a long way, I still think that strength training is important because, you know, if you're in an objective or you're in a hunt where like you're carrying 60, 80 pounds, if all, if all, if you're like, look, I'm just going to, it's kind of like saying, I'm going to train for my sport only by doing your sport. That's that, the that, problem. That, That's that what works, people yeah. do, man. And that, that works to a point, but then you have no buffer. So it's like, if you're playing, you know, rugby and in rugby, we see that maybe like, you know, it's very rare that like an athlete will exceed 20 miles an hour, in, you know, linear velocity in, in, in a field sport, because, the, you know, it's not like you're, you have like a hundred meters to run in a straight line, you're evading opponents, but a lot of the game breaking plays in those sports involve like maximal velocity, even if it's not for a hundred meters, like breakaway speed, the guys that make the most money in these leagues are a lot of times the ones who can, can achieve the highest linear velocities, but even, even the fastest athletes, you know, if, if they only reach 20 miles an hour in a game because of the constraints of the game, if all you ever do is play the game and you never exceed 20 miles an hour, you have no, no speed buffer. So I think that there's, you know, it's like having money in the bank for something. If you know that your expenses are $10 a day and you put $10 a day in the bank, like that's, you know, you're meeting the, the bare minimum, but you have no buffer or no capacity. If, if, if for whatever reason, something goes wrong and you have to, you have to exceed that. So you don't need a billion dollars in your bank account to be able to spend $10 a day. But if you've got a little bit of a buffer, it makes you kind of more robust. And so it's the same thing on hunting. If you know that you're going to be walking, you know, with a 60 to 80 pound pack, and that's all you ever do, like being able to deadlift, you know, 350 plus pounds, like makes, makes you more comfortable with those heavier loads. And now you're working at like just a, a lower percentage of your maximal output when you carry 60 to 80 pounds. So again, you can take this to the extreme. You don't need to deadlift 600 pounds to be able to carry a 60 to 80 pound pack. But if you never do any strength training beyond just walking around with a pack, then you're not going to have that much of a buffer. And so having a little bit more relative strength, maximal strength makes that 60 to 80 pounds feel less heavy. And now if you, you know, you develop some work capacity, aerobic capacity on top of that. So it's like, if you look at any sport, even in track and field, like the way that they train an 800 meter runner, they don't just go out and run 800s. They basically have their, they take both ends of the, of the spectrum. They do their speed work, which for speed work for 800 meter runner might be running like repeat 200s, repeat 400s, you know, some like flying 60s. They're not running like, you know, 40s, like maybe a football player would do. And then they're, you know, for them, like their, their capacity work might be running like, you know, at a, at a 10K pace or at a 5K pace. They're not going out and running marathons, but they take, you know, what are the, what for them, what's the supportive work at each end of the continuum from like an intensity and like a, a volume or a capacity standpoint, they train both ends of that continuum. So they have some bandwidth. And then as they get closer to their event, they reduce that bandwidth to, so that they're training more specifically for their event, but you still have to have some bandwidth. And I think that in, in hunting in particular, and even in mountaineering, what you see is a lot of people, like all they do is hunt or all they do is mountaineer and they never develop that bandwidth. So you need to have some relative strength. You need to have some maximal strength. I think you even need to have some elastic ability. That's why I like, I, I like having people do plyos, even though you're kind of a pack mule, it does help to have some elastic ability so that when you trip on something, you know, you're able to kind of get out of that and you have capacity when things go wrong. Um, and it's why I have people, you know, even, even though like you might only be, let's say, you know, walking at like three to four miles an hour, I do think there is a place for doing some, even some like tempo intervals and not like, not like maximal sprint work, but things where you're going a little bit faster. So you have an extra gear, but the bulk of, of training for hunting for the military should be kind of more aerobic, low intensity work capacity type oriented training. But I think you need to have some power oriented work and some strength oriented work to complement that, to give yourself some, some bandwidth. So there's a ton of similarity, but I think hunters should train like how, you know, people in the military would train to do their job because 
work capacity like does reign supreme in those endeavors, but you need to support that work capacity with some high intensity work. But what we also see is a trend where people think, oh, well, like what, you know, doing things at a low output or at a low intensity is easy. So we don't need to train for it. And they try to like biohack it where it's like, okay, you're going to run a marathon or you're going to do this hunt. And all you've got to do is, is high intensity work and intervals. And like, there's a reason why aerobic athletes in any sport, whether it's cross country skiing, running, rowing, the bulk of their training is low intensity, you know, higher volume type work. That's like their 80%, but they still support that low intensity work with 20% of higher intensity work. And so the whole point with any of this stuff is to avoid extremes. You don't want to train for an aerobic or a work capacity based endeavor by only doing high intensity, low volume type work. But if all you do is, you know, work capacity oriented work, you're also leaving some potential on the table. So you've got to figure out like, what are the demands? And you might prioritize one end of the spectrum, but it's got to be supported with the other extreme to give yourself more of that bandwidth. Well, I think there's two things to talk about there. The first is that I, and, and, and of course they just, they don't have access and they don't spend the time on the things like you and I spend time on, but people don't understand that the whole lowering the floor uh, by doing a lot of, of aerobic capacity type work makes it easier to do the high intensity work when you want to do it. Yep. And they just, they, it's missed on people because they're just not told about it. So I think it's really important that we talk about that. I yep. think another thing that, that uh, is important. You, you said about the relative strength stuff and, and how that's going to support your, your capacity. But I think another thing that people miss on with that is they want to do the same things over and over again. Like, well, I'm just going to pack. That's all I really need to do because that's what I'm going to be doing. And they don't understand that that leads them into potential issues because they just don't have enough complexity in, in their movement skills. And they have, like pattern overuse where it's like people that just go shoot their bow all the time and don't do anything to, to mitigate the stress of that. Well, they end up with elbow and shoulder issues. It's like, well, we need to do these other things too, just so our system is more robust. Yes. Yeah. You gotta be like a human being first and like, and, and, and yeah. a healthy, a healthy human being first, you can't do your job. And so like, yeah, I think that there's, if there's too much of a disconnect between general ability and specialized ability, that's where I think the potential for injury lies. So like if all you do is you get so adapted to do one thing very, very well, and that's like kind of all you can do, then you're not actually adaptable outside of that specialized endeavor. So, you know, and, and I think sometimes using extremes can be illuminating because the flip side of this is, and I'm sure you and I both know plenty of like strength coaches and people in our field who would, who would look at like what some of these like mountaineers or hunters are doing. And they'd be like, oh, like all they do is hunt or mountaineer, like their training is so, you know, they're, they're a bunch of cavemen. But then if you took the strength coach who like does the quote unquote perfect programming and doesn't do any specific like mountaineering or hunting stuff, they will get their absolute like ass kicked oh, doing that. So absolutely. If, you, if you, if you have to pick between doing like what strength coaches like doing or just wearing a pack and, or and hunting or just mountaineering, like, yes, you'll be better served for your specific endeavor. If like all you did was that thing, because you know, it's, it's more specific, but, what but we're saying at, what's the best way we're saying, what's the best way to do it in the best and, way. And at what best. time scale and at what yes. time scale, you know what I mean? Because I think that that's the thing that people miss out on is like, you know, well, I was, I was fine for the first five years. It's like, yeah, yeah but then you're, you, let's say you hit 35 or 40 and that's you just, point. that's the only stress that you've given your body. Well, of course you have fucking sciatica. Like you just, and, yeah. And from a longevity thing. standpoint, that's so important because people, yeah. people are very short-sighted myself because I've, I mean, I've done dumb things in my past that like sure. I'm paying the price for it now, as I'm sure you have. And yeah, it's like when you're in your early twenties, it's very easy to be like, oh, like I'm going to feel this way forever, but it takes more general, especially the older you get, the more it takes more general stuff to be able to maintain your specific yeah. ability, but why not, why not do it earlier and just get ahead of it? That's why I keep yeah. trying to, that's why I keep trying to grab these guys that I know that are, that are hunters and stuff. And, and they just, they love the, I mean, Okay, so let's make a delineation. Watching the CrossFit games is pretty sweet because what they can do is is pretty rad. But yeah. I think a lot of people don't understand that those folks aren't doing the wads. And uh, but the guys, I'm trying to get them. They're like in their twenty, their mid twenties, the late twenties, and they're doing all the CrossFit type stuff. And I'm like, they're like, oh, but I love it. It works. And it's like, yeah. 
for now until you don't realize what's going to happen in, in three years when you've cumul- accumulated all of the shit from doing this, you know? Yeah. And, and I mean, that's a great point. The other thing is like a lot of times when people try something and they say like, Oh, like it, you know, it worked. It's often the novelty. So if you take a, yep. if you take like a, like a hunter or someone who does more like mountaineering oriented training where like all they've ever done is just low intensity, high volume type work. When they do some higher intensity work and it's more like glycolytic work, it's more like in the middle of the intensity zone, it might actually make them better climbers or better hunters because they've never done any of that. So they've given themselves, like they're not going to lose all of their aerobic ability if they do CrossFit for three months, right? Right. So, and they, they, they have this huge aerobic base. So now by doing some higher intensity or some moderate intensity work, now they've expanded their bandwidth in the short term and they might actually perform better. That's a really but good point. That's not, that's, but if, if that's all they continue doing, then they're, then they're going to run out of gas. So yep. it's like, again, it comes down to just avoiding the extremes and you, you have to prioritize certain things. You can't be the best at everything, but you need to support your specific, you know, specific abilities with more general stuff. And so for some people in the beginning, like CrossFit might actually fill that general bucket very well, because if you do, if you, if you do what you're lacking, it will make you better overall. But I don't know necessarily if like, for for example, CrossFit, as it's traditionally done, is the best way to fill that bucket. But it is a way to fill that bucket. And if that bucket is empty, people might see really big improvements early on. But like you're talking about, you really got to think long term. And what's how do you, how do you optimize long term performance? Yeah. Um, and you don't need I mean, the thing, do you need some glycolytic training? Yeah. But I think like I, I, don't, I do, you know, before guys are getting ready to ship off to hunts. I'll do like six to 12 sessions of it. Maybe Yeah, it's like, you're good. You don't need any more. That's it. You're fine. Right. And, and just people are basing their entire yearly, well, not cycle. They're just doing random shit, but like the entire year is like this, this anxiety provoking training where it's like, you're actually not training your brain to deal with the anxiety provoking situations that you're putting yourself into because you have no way to monitor or, or, train yourself to a response it's just like you're just hammering the shit out of yourself all the time yeah i mean i've tried at various points in my life like okay how can i because the problem with low intensity work is the stimulus is the duration that you do it so to get the benefit of it like if you're you know doing something like at a low heart rate right low intensity if you do it for 20 minutes you're not going to get an adaptation Hmm. like it might take an hour to two hours to three hours to get the adaptation and it's you have to do cyclical activities and it's just boring as hell. So naturally there's an instinct to be like, all right, like how can I do this in a shorter amount of time? Yeah. And so I've tried to do that. But then when I, you know, like went, went on, went on a mountain and I'm like, okay, I've got to walk eight hours, 10 hours a day. Like you can only hack and cheat the system so much. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, it's an unfortunate reality, but you, you, you've got to spend time doing that stuff to develop the adaptation. It's not always sh- shortcuts to it. Do you think you can accumulate it throughout the week though? So my question for you would be, cause, and, and this would be a place where I could update my programming. If you think differently is, could you do accumulate throughout the week? Say, you know, arbitrarily, let's say the goal is to accumulate four hours of, of work at your aerobic, your, your, uh, what's it called? Maximum aerobic function. Yeah. Uh, could you do it accumulate it like in half hour to 45 minute blocks across the week? Or do you think there needs to be just a long block? I, I think you, I mean, what, cause most people aren't accumulating anywhere near four hours at those sure. kind of intensities. No. no, you know, I mean, you think about it, like you're, you're saying four hours a week of just that, even if you're doing it like a half hour, 45 minutes at a time, and then people want to, they want to lift, they want to do other stuff. So right. that four hours, when you add everything else, it's probably like seven or eight hours. Most people are not spending four hours, even in, half hour, 45 minute chunks doing that. So I would say the answer to your question is yes. And then it comes down to like, what is, what's the minimum that you have to do? And then it's, well, what are you trying to, to accomplish? Sure. I mean, I think that I, that's why like most people that I program for, I try to say, look, like on a weekend, try to have one day where you do something that lasts like about two hours. Um, but and, and throughout the week, I'm accumulating volume by doing it in shorter increments. And I, I think, you know, there is a way to kind of um, get a little bit more intensity to, to reduce the need for volume. Like that's why I think you and I both like HICT type stuff, yep. because I, I don't think it's, I don't think it's a replacement for longer, lower intensity things, but 
I think for people who are pressed for time, it's a very nice compromise. So, you know, doing like a heavy sled drag and accumulating like say 40 minutes to an hour of work is going to take you a lot less than going for, you know, a, um, a three mile hike. And I think that it's going to prepare you almost equally well without that time commitment. It's why I like things like incline treadmill walks, because, you know, as long as you're, you're not, you're avoiding like a really, really glycolytic zone and you're, you know, kind of below your, your threshold. So I like saying like at a pace, you can breathe through your nose because that's going to, it's going to keep the intensity from not getting too high. But if you can find a treadmill where it has like a 25 or a 30% grade, get a, you know, get a pretty heavy ass pack and accumulate anywhere between like a half hour and an hour of that kind of work. I think it does prepare you for those longer type of, of outputs without having to do the output. But in an ideal world, I would probably have people during the week do more of the HICT type things where they're more pressed for time. And then if they can on a weekend, it's like, hey, try to try to take a couple of hours to a half a day and do something that's like really, really low intensity, long duration. But if they had to throw that out and they couldn't do it, I would, I would prioritize like the HICT type things, which I think is what you're talking about reaches a nice sweet spot between yes. you're accumulating some, some, you know, aerobic type adaptations, but you're using, you're, you're, you're getting a little bit of intensity to kind of minimize the, the duration required to get the adaptation. Well, I think too, and just from, you can look at, at people's heart rate, heart rates during yeah. that. And even if you're doing that or HRIs, like a high resistance interval, yeah. if you're doing them right and you're letting your heart rate come back down yes. between efforts, like your average heart rate usually stays somewhere in the, the 130 to 150 range yep. anyway, if you're doing yeah. it right. So yep. I, I think it, I think it can serve that purpose. I just, you know, you look at certain things like, uh, and obviously it's, it's very specific for mountaineers, but like, uh, the new, new training for alpinism or whatever was, I have that book. And it's like, yeah, they're talking about like ridiculous amounts of aerobic activity throughout the week, which is like great if you can do it, but it's just a lot of people, it's not feasible. Yeah. And I think that's a great book. And like, and they, they have a good podcast too. And I actually heard an episode where they, they were talking to someone who actually works as, as a PA. So he's got a very demanding job and he's an ultra marathoner and like yeah. how they, you know, um, for his time constraints, structured as training. And it was a lot of what we're talking about, kind of like HICT-ish type things because he didn't have, you know, yeah, if you're a professional mountaineer and that's your only job, you can train four hours a day. And so a lot of times I even get like military people who are like, oh, I want to do that program. And I'm like, well, do you have four hours? Because your job is to like shoot and do CQB and do medicine and do all these things. Like, and even if you had the, the time or the willingness, the discipline to do four hours of training on top of everything else you're doing, even if you don't perceive doing CQB runs for four hours is stressful, like it actually is. Sure. So do you, do you have that much like money left in the bank to, to, to drain, even though it's low intensity to do four hours of, you know, walking uphill somewhere, even with a low heart rate. So I think that like, like anything else, we can look at that. And I think that's, that's best case scenario for an Alpine athlete, but like, all right, how do you, how do you prior, how do you take those concepts and apply them to somebody who actually like is in the military and like their job, they have a different job. Like you can take principles from alpinism and apply it to preparing military, military population, but your job is not to be a professional alpinist. So I think that what the military can take from that book and that system is, okay, like maybe we shouldn't be doing just glycolytic work and just CrossFit because some military people do like zero aerobic work at all. So then it's like, okay, let's work within their constraints. Let's do what Todd's saying and take people who are only doing glycolytic work every day. And if we can get them to accumulate like four hours a week of kind of lower intensity type work, I think it's going to make a huge difference. But that book is calling for like four hours of low intensity work almost every day, which is not yeah. realistic, right? So it's like, how do we meet in the middle? I think, I think we can reconcile all these, all these worlds and make sense of it. Yeah. Well, and you need other things. You yeah. need general athleticism. And I think, you know, the, the plyometric stuff contributes to the relative strength and how much output that you can, that you can give. And I think it's just all of those things. You have to be a generalist going back to all of the different, you know, based on your military experience and the things we talked about before is you, you see your, I think a lot of hunters see themselves as like, well, I'm this, I, I walk in, I kill the thing and I walk out, but they miss all the steps in between that where, it requires a certain level of athleticism. It requires a certain 
ability to manage your stress and, and manage your mental uh, outlook. And, and because it's, it's real tough when like, you don't see shit for three days, and then all of a sudden you see something and your heart jumps through the roof and you have to be able to manage all of that and, and get yourself into a place where you can shoot. And that's why I know you're, I, I just, I didn't realize this until I, I was reading, rereading uh, Building the Elite. And I finally looked at the back of the book and I saw that they thanked you in there. And I was like, oh, cool. That was, yeah. that was pretty sweet. But I've been, since I read about eustress training in there, I've been playing around with it a lot. And dude, I, it's so valuable. So, so, so valuable. Those guys are great. And they, they'd probably be good people to have on the podcast too. I've known Craig for a while. And, um, I, you know, that, that book, I think it's almost like a, a misnomer because it talks about like preparing, you know, people for special operations pipelines. But I think it's one of the best books on like performance and just Without a doubt. the stress yeah. response I've ever read. Um, it's really like a, it's like a textbook about adaptation and stress. It really and, is. And I, I love the stuff about the psychological, you know, because I think people would read that book and expect like, here's a program to like prepare for buds or whatever. Like that's actually like not what it is at all. It's not like, here's what you should do. It's very kind of principle-based and conceptual. And I think some people who expect that will be frustrated by it, but from like a big picture standpoint, it's like literally one of the best books on performance. Doubt. And most people don't touch on the, the psychological aspect of it, but even like, you know, and I think there's a lot of programs that you can use to prepare for, buds or hrt or pj selection like i, I think as, as you and i both know working with people in fitness a lot of it comes down to like consistency and just like just stick with something yep. there's a lot of ways to be able to meet the physical standards for those programs i think there's like better and worse ways but like if you find something and stick to it as long as it's like not it's like reasonable it's not like crazy you will be physically prepared for those programs but that's not all these programs are about it's like how do you deal with knowing that okay you're going to wake up at four in the morning and get your ass kicked all day. And you don't, you don't know exactly what you're going to do and dealing with uncertainty. Like that book, building the elite has a lot of, I think things like compartmentalization and a lot of psychological strategies to deal with that. And that's like, that's so important. It's stuff that no one talks about. Oh yeah. Or they just tell you to be harder. You know what I mean? That's, and right. that's the message that yeah. you kind of alluded to earlier in the conversation about like, well, we just need to be hard. It's like, no, you need to use your goddamn head. Yeah. And, and that's the, um, that's it. And it's, it's all skill-based. It's, and I think that mental toughness, people should be talking about mental skills to be able to control yep. the way that they perceive a situation and how they respond. And that it's, I, I was, I was telling Chris the other day, we do, we do some eustress stuff every Friday. And, and the past few weeks, it's been like breath ladders with, with squats and just, and rows and maintaining your, your heart rate under 150 and recovering under 130, you know, and just having to Zen out when you have a load on the front of your body is a difficult thing to do. Yeah. And so I, I was doing that on Friday. And then last week I went last Saturday, I went Turkey hunting and I had this gobbler coming in for like half an hour and just watching him come in. And I'm usually pretty good at regulating my emotions, like when that's happening, but I literally felt myself do exactly what I did during the eustress training when right. I was squatting. And it's like, man, there's just th that kind of training and stuff is just so invaluable. I think for most people just within their lives, but in situations where you're going to have to regulate your mo emotions because of something that could be perceived as extreme, it's just invaluable. Yeah, there's probably a lot of application to hunting with that because I would imagine if you're waiting for something for three days and you finally see it, it's oh, yeah. like, whoa. And, and you know, you don't want to totally like eliminate your stress response because having a heightened level of arousal like does is adaptive and it probably and it's fun. <laughs> and it, has, it has survival value, yeah. but it's, you know, if you over, if you overdo it now, you're not, you know, you lose your fine motor skills and all these things that you need when you're, when you're hunting. So and a lot of stuff is trainable. I mean, even like you said, it's, it's a mental, it's a skill and a skill presumably can be trained and, and developed. Um, and, and what I think is cool what you and Chris are doing is you're not detaching the physical from the psychological. Like you're actually, you're doing physical and psychological preparation at the same time. And it should be the same thing, right? Because the more abstract it is and the more devoid it is of context, like people talk about meditation and meditation is great. I mean, I personally don't set aside time during my day to, to like meditate, but you know, when you're training for like a water-based military selection course and you're doing underwaters in the pool. Like that's actually like very meditative because 
you can use some of those psychological skills. Like, okay, I know that for a 25 meter underwater swim, it's going to take me five strokes. So even though after two strokes, I'm like, man, like I'm on my 10th one on a short rest. This really sucks. My diaphragm's contracting to breathe. You know, saying I've got 15 meters left versus I've got three strokes. I've got three strokes and I'll be done. Like yeah. those are things that you can do. And that, that like, that to me is a form of meditation. I think that doing your stress training where you're trying to control your heart rate while you've got kettlebells rocking your shoulders, like that is meditation. So meditation can take many forms. Um, but I don't, I don't know necessarily, I think if you're trying to really develop skills for hunting or military selection courses, meditation, I think is, is good. I'm not saying don't do it, but the closer, the closer the, med the meditative skill mimics your competitive environment, and involves some physical stress too. I was going to say, you it's need gonna the be stress. It's going to be better. Yeah. You need something to, to make you have to like Zen out. Cause even just feeling the weight of your arms pressing into your rib cage and you're like, well, I have to do these three breaths and blah, blah. And then like, you start to watch your own mental state and then you can start to control it. And it just, you just, and it's crazy because you get the biofeedback. Cause as soon as you start to actually get control of your thoughts, you watch your heart rate go down. And it's really, really cool. Yeah. It's like, how do you develop? Because all these things come down to focus. And I think, yeah. you know, when they've done studies on people that do better in these kind of courses, it's like, they're better off at focusing at the task at hand and drowning out noise. Yep. And, you know, so maybe it's like anything else. It's progressive overload. I mean, I think that for a lot of people, just meditation and sitting in a dark, quiet room, that might be a starting place because maybe for that person, when you're starting out, like there's a lot of noise in your head, you've got to drown out. And if you can't drown out that noise in your head, you're not going to be able to drown out physical stress, increased heart rate, people screaming at you, things going off in the background, just the, the noise and sounds you hear in the woods. Or just what's you, relevant. What yeah. is relevant? What do I need to pay attention to? Right. But once you can, once you get rid of that, like, you know, phase one, drown out the, the noise in your head. Well, now you might want to learn how to calm your mind down when there is external noise. Yeah. Because that's a skill in itself. And it's like, meditating in a dark room i don't know if it totally carries over to um to that that environment those environments but you know it's 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 progressive overload and it's a skill so i think some people just for general health probably should do something that looks like meditation just to, to drown up a noise in their life but if we're talking about training for a specific endeavor the closer that mindfulness is to the competitive environment i think the more carryover or transfer that training is going to have so i think there's like there's mindfulness for general health, which is what meditation is. And I think that's great. But there's also mindfulness for what is the specific skill you're trying to execute. And that's where combining more physical stress with these psychological type of focus and compartmentalization techniques has a lot of value. Yeah, I think it's hugely impactful. And I, I, it's something that I include in, at some point through all of the, the hunting trading programs. It's just like, you got to go from just can because everybody has people doing a bunch of burpees and then go shoot your gun or your bow. It's like, I don't know that there's a lot of transfer. It's like, also, are you skilled enough to really be able to control everything through that? It's like, why don't we work on the skill of shooting your gun and work on the skill of being able to control your mental state and your heart rate, and then just go shoot because you're not going to have anything that extreme when you, when you have to go take a shot anyway. So it just doesn't make a great deal of sense to me, but being able to, it's the same thing as you talk about like a training the 800 runner. It's like, train your shooting skills, train your mental skills, and then you will find a, a, a point of connection when you're out in the field and you're hunting. Yeah. And I think, you know, like, that's interesting. Cause I always wondered that, and I don't know if I totally have the answer, but looking at one variable, like heart rate, even like a race car driver, like I think when they drive their heart rates are pretty elevated, but it's not the same thing as running a 5k. No. So like, if you said, okay, well, we're going to train you for that by, we're going to like run a 300 yard shuttle and then have you drive, like what's going to make them better at driving fast is progressively learning how to drive fast and get better at the skill of driving exactly. and, and using mental skills to be more comfortable driving fast. I think it's the same thing with hunting. It's like, yeah, I mean, maybe in the military where you're like breaking contact, running behind cover, you've got to learn to shoot where you've had like physical exertion beforehand. But for hunting, for the most part, you're like hiding behind something when you're going to, yeah. before you shoot. So yeah, you might have an elevated heart rate because you see an animal for the first time in three days, but I don't know if the best way to train for that situation is to like artificially, elevate your, you heart rate, artificially yeah. elevate your heart rate. It's like, yeah. I think it's learning, becoming a better skilled shooter and then learning how to, you know, basically like 
use some of these mindfulness techniques to calm your, exactly. calm your breath down. Um, I, I think that, you know, there's still a place for developing aerobic fitness and getting your heart rate up and doing physical things. But yeah, I mean, I think it's overly simplistic to say like, let's just, let's just go smoke somebody and then I'm shoot and make them a better shooter. You won't. Um, yeah. You just want to, you won't be able to access the skill because you'll be performing and not learning. And it's just, right. It's just, it's just not a good way to do things, but um, Doug, this has been great, man. I appreciate you taking the time, dude. Yeah. Thanks. It's always fun. Yeah. Uh, Doug, where can everybody find out more about Doug Kajichin? Uh, yeah. So the website for the group that I work with is um, resilientperformance.com. That's like a physical therapy clinic and consulting and some like um, physical therapy and strength and conditioning educational materials. It's my partners, uh, Greg and Trevor, who do that with me. And then for the social media stuff, our uh, Instagram is Instagram and Twitter. The handle is resilient PPT. And then the only, the main um, social media platform that I'm individually active on is Twitter. And my handle there is Greenfeet PT. And so, yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm on there. Like, you know, I, social media for me is kind of a, love-hate relationship because it allows me to connect with people that I think are really insightful and intelligent and get stuff from them. But then I have to go on it and see everything else that's on there. So I do my best to <laughs> mindfully drown out the noise, but um, I, I, I am on there. So I, I like to interact with, you know, thoughtful people. So if, if you're one of those people, I'd be happy to interact. That's awesome, man. Um, yeah. Thanks again, dude. I, I always appreciate our conversations. Let's, uh, let's do this again soon. Yeah, absolutely. We'd love to. All right. Thanks, Doug. Bye. Thank you.